Welcome to Dictatorum, episode 1.7, The 90s Hit Libya with a Brick. Last time, we saw how Libya's foreign adventurism in the 1970s turned into terrorist activity and wars in the 1980s. From fighting a seemingly endless conflict with Chad to making no friends amongst the other Arab nations, Libyan foreign policy was random and often violent. Libyan involvement in the killing of dissidents abroad and the murder of a London policewoman soured relations in Europe. The bombing of a nightclub and the downing of an airliner over Scotland landed Libya with harsh international sanctions and U.S. airstrikes. Couple that with endless economic reform that was in no way based in reality, and you can see why many Libyans just wanted the 80s to end. In this episode, we talk about how the wild decade of the 1980s led into a 1990s of hardship, deprivation, and international isolation. As the 1980s turned into the 1990s, the Lockerbie bombing was on everyone's mind. While Libya was not the first suspect, the testimony of a Maltese shopkeep led to the indictment of two Libyans who supposedly executed the plot, with some saying that Gaddafi himself was the mastermind behind it or at least the approving authority. After the two suspects, Abdelbasset al-Megrahi and Alamin Khalifa Firma, returned to Libya, the Gaddafi government refused to hand them over to the British and the American authorities for questioning and trial. Relations with these two countries were already at a low after the murder of police constable Yvonne Fletcher in 1984 and the discotheque bombing of Berlin in 1986. The U.S. and Britain demanded that investigators have full access to evidence, that the Libyan government accept full responsibility, and that it make reparations to the families of the victims, and all of this before even one day in court, much less a conviction. Gaddafi took these accusations personally, and scoffed at the idea of handing over al-Megrahi and Firma. He made public statements that the Lockerbie affair was conjured up as another way the West was supporting Israel over the Arabs. It was racism that stemmed back to the Roman Empire, the Spanish Reconquista, and colonialism. Evidence that Libya actually committed this heinous act is, however, kind of lacking. The only witness the investigators had was a Maltese shopkeeper who sold some clothes to Almograhi and Firma. It took almost three years to even pin anything on Libya, and only then, after one of the Lockerbie bomb components, matched a bomb component used in the bombing of a French airliner over Niger the next year. Libya was suspected of being involved with the second bombing, which led to the accusations about Lockerbie. The British and Americans threatened Gaddafi with some pretty harsh economic sanctions if he didn't hand the two guys over. Gaddafi couldn't just sit there and take this kind of punishment laying down, though, so of course he refused to accept responsibility. But... The idea of sanctions was painful, so Gaddafi made a few proposals to stave off crippling economic measures. The colonel proposed to have the men tried in a third country, like another Arab state or even in Malta. He agreed to French demands for an investigation into the downing of the French airliner in 1989. The Libyan government paid $250,000 to a police memorial fund named after Fletcher in early 1991 and Gaddafi even offered to share details of Libya's support to the Irish Republican Army. This wasn't enough for the Brits and the Yanks, who would take nothing but full capitulation. 
On the last day of March 1992, America and the UK brought the issue to the United Nations, which voted to impose sanctions on Libya. The sanctions specifically targeted Libya's national carrier, Libyan Arab Airlines, as well as arms sales and diplomatic representation within Libya. In early 1993, the sanctions were tightened to strike at the energy sector, but did not prevent Libya from selling oil abroad. This was the saving grace for the country, which, as we know, was almost wholly dependent on oil sales to fund its budget. Still, though, the hits kept coming. By November 1993, the UN Security Council once again strengthened the sanctions regime. Whereas business with Libyan Arab Airlines was previously restricted, it was now prohibited. Other nations closed their diplomatic establishments inside Libya, and further limitations were slapped on the sections of the Libyan oil industry. While these sanctions were indeed harmful, Libya's lifeblood could still be sold on the world market, and oil production actually increased compared to the 1980s. But it became increasingly difficult to get replacement parts for the oil fields. Gaddafi's government had anticipated the sanctions would get tougher, and had moved lots of their financial assets to safe havens. This was cold comfort to the average Libyan, who would now have to face additional hardships in an already tough, everyday existence. What hit Gaddafi personally just as much as the sanctions themselves was the fact that no one in the Arab world would side with Libya. Although he had been a thorn in just about everyone's side for years, Gaddafi still believed in Arab solidarity and unity. As we saw previously throughout his reign, the colonel had made attempts to unite Libya with just about every other Arab nation. When Gaddafi needed the solidarity he had preached for years, there was none to be had. This wasn't a good start to his third decade in power, and it portended an even worse period to follow. That Libyan commander that was captured in Chad in 1987, Khalifa Haftar, well, he and some of his soldiers captured with him announced their support for regime change in Libya. He had been co-opted by the CIA. He was now an enemy of the state. Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein even started supplying Haftar with weapons before Iraq's fallout with the U.S. just a couple of years later. Originally based in Zaire, which is now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Haftar eventually moved to the United States and gained U.S. citizenship. He launched an aborted coup attempt in the mid-1990s, but nothing really came out of it. The end of the Cold War meant that regime change in Libya would soon move to the back burner. Still though, Haftar's defection was a harsh blow to the brother leader, as Haftar was with Gaddafi since before the 1 September coup, and because he was one of Libya's most senior military officers. Furthering his woes, Gaddafi had to contend with an attempted coup plot in 1993. Officers from the Werfela tribe, one of the three most loyal to Gaddafi, plotted with a Libyan dissident group. Luckily for him, the officers were found out within months, arrested, and interrogated. These interrogations were broadcast on Libyan national TV, even. Gaddafi had the Werfela tribe destroy the men's homes and confiscate their property before having six of them executed by firing squad and hanging two of them in 1997. The plot was not a serious threat to Gaddafi, but it showed that cracks were starting to form in the Jamaharia. 
The handling of the fair, which was designed to keep the rest of the Wordfella tribe loyal to the regime, also shows how the colonel used tribal loyalty as a tool to help the state. Even though Gaddafi had repeatedly called the tribal system backwards and outdated, it didn't mean it was going to disappear. He had to placate the tribes, and often play them off each other to maintain his own supremacy. Another threat, and this one much bigger to the regime, came in the form of Islamic extremism. Starting in the late 1970s, Arab nationalism gave way to political Islam as a major force in the Muslim world. The Iranian Revolution in 1979 gave this nascent movement some real steam, and so did the Mujahideen victory over the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Extremist groups spread all over the Muslim world, from the sands of the Sahara to the jungles of southern Philippines, and Libya was no exception. Upwards of 1,000 Libyans are thought to have fought against the Soviets in Afghanistan alone. Back in Libya, young Islamists started listening to radical sermons on cassette tapes or sharing pamphlets. This was all highly illegal, of course, but that didn't stop many people. As early as 1989, the Gaddafi regime was breaking up these Islamist cells, but the Islamist tide kept growing stronger through the early 1990s. More women started to wear the veil, and more men started growing long beards, both of which are customary in Islamic society, but which had been largely out of style in Gaddafi's Libya. In nearby Sudan, Islamism became government-sponsored. The country even played host to Osama bin Laden, who by now was a world-famous terrorist with a grudge against the U.S. Libya's neighbor to the west, Algeria, experienced a rise in Islamism starting in the late 1980s, and an army coup in 1991 to stop the Islamists led to a civil war which lasted until 2002. Gaddafi was determined to keep Libya from experiencing a similar fate. It was an especially egregious situation for Gaddafi, who had always championed himself as a savior for Islam and a devout Muslim. Throughout his life, Gaddafi prayed multiple times a day and would often go on retreats to the desert to, for prayer and relaxation. In addition, he stood up and preached in mosques, even though this irked the religious establishment. An attempt on Gaddafi's life in 1996, in the form of a grenade attack, unleashed all of the colonel's fury. Not only were suspected Islamists round up and imprisoned, sympathizers and suspected sympathizers were also jailed. A law was introduced called the Charter of Honor, which denied even the most basic of services, like water and electricity, to whole tribes if one of their members was found to be an Islamic militant. In June 1996, some of these militants staged a riot at Abu Slim prison where they were being held. The regime came in and slaughtered them all. 1,286 inmates were killed and thrown in mass graves. This was the largest atrocity of the Gaddafi era. The Muslim Brotherhood, a political party originally formed in Egypt during the colonial era, but which had expanded to Libya before being banned, was slowly rebuilding. To turn the tide against Islamism, Gaddafi ordered that the Muslim Brotherhood be rooted out and destroyed. The regime launched a mass arrest of its members, and 152 were picked up and imprisoned. He had broken up the Islamist terror cells and political parties, which included people from all over Libya, 
but Gaddafi felt that the movement's heart was in Cyrenaica. He didn't let the Cyrenaicans forget. Investment in Libya's eastern provinces dwindled, and the cities started to look like a post-apocalyptic war zone rather than real cities, especially in Benghazi. This would be one of the reasons that Benghazi was the first to rise up in rebellion that would eventually topple the brother leader. Islamism in Libya was largely defeated, at least for the time being, but the country was still suffering from international sanctions and isolation. Decades of neglect were taking their toll, as were the sanctions. Libya tried to import oil industry parts on the black market, with some success, but largely the country was unable to acquire the spare parts needed to keep its oil industry going. Reverse engineering and manufacturing them in Libya also failed. That, with falling oil prices, meant that Libya's economy was in the doldrums. Plus, if you'll recall, public sector wages were frozen at 1981 levels, and inflation was in the double digits. Just making ends meet was increasingly more difficult for the average Libyan. Some people with the right connections were able to make a fortune during the 90s. While most of Libya was seeing their neighborhoods turn into slums, their schools run out of books, and their markets run bare, a few Libyans were able to use international and local connections to get black markets set up. Cell phones, western music, and luxury goods could all be had for the right price. But the freezing of salaries and the horrible inflation meant that many of these goods were unattainable for most people. Most of Libya was wholly reliant on the state just to survive. The brother and leader knew he had to do something to lift the sanctions. In April of 1999, he did just the thing that a few years before he promised to never do. Make a deal to end the Lockerbie affair. The United States and Britain offered to try the Lockerbie suspects in the Netherlands under Scottish law. And after that, British Prime Minister Tony Blair asked for assistance from South African leader Nelson Mandela. Gaddafi had supported Mandela and his political party in South Africa for years, and now Mandela got Gaddafi to agree to let al-Megrahi and Firma stand trial. The sanctions could now start to be lifted, and although he had not fully reconciled with the West, a crucial breakthrough had been made. Libya could start to crawl its way out of the economic corner it had been in for years. But don't think that Libya is out of the woods yet. As we've seen, the colonel could hardly ever get along with Britain and the United States. Next time, we'll take a look at the controversial outcome of the Al-Megrahi and Firma trial, as well as Libya's reintegration into the world economic and diplomatic system in a post-9-11 world that few could have imagined just a few years before. Mm -hmm.